look to your left. Now look to your right. Neither of the people next to you will be your friend two years from now. I don't make the rules. This is New York City, you fucking cowards. Enjoy the time you have together, because one out of the three of you is going to make it in the art world and the other two are going to call it quits, move to the Hudson Valley, and posture all over Instagram like it's the result of you growing more mature, and not because you face planted here. Hello, not a art fair. Wait. Holy shit. Like, not. A art fair? What is this? Spring break? LMAO just kidding. Who fucking cares? Of course, I know what NADA means. It stands for the New Art Dealers Alliance. But what I don't know is if they mean that the alliance of art dealers is new, or if it is an alliance of dealers who only sell new art. Can somebody please tweet at them and ask about this? Thanks. Anyways, welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you asking for art fair passes privately while shitting on them publicly screedlers. This is Staff Only, the podcast studio manager. We've got a fantastic live episode for you today. With a fantastic guest, Leo Fitzpatrick. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Jackass. It's episode 51 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Uh, not in New York. How's it going? Woo! Having a good time? Okay, wonderful to see you. Wonderful to see you. Joshua, come on in. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, so today we're going to be doing a live podcast episode, and we have a very special guest. I first encountered this special guest, probably like a lot of you, in a 1995 film by uh, uh, an old man named Larry Clark. Little film called Children. Maybe you've heard of it. It's wonderful, told about skateboarding and things like that. Uh, have encountered this person many other times, but a couple years ago at a show for Betty Tompkins, an artist that I helped put together, and ran into him and thought, holy shit, wait, I know you. And then we got to chatting, then became buds. So please join me in welcoming my guest today for episode 51 of the Humor in the Abject podcast, Leo Fitzpatrick. Leo, how are you? I'm good, and uh, congratulations on your first live podcast. It's my second, but thank you, yes. <laughs> well, it's the first one that matters. The first one at an art fair, yes. Yeah. The first one that's not in Brooklyn. Are we in Manhattan? We are in Manhattan. We're in Manhattan. Uh, so how are you enjoying the fair so far today, Leo? Um, I'm enjoying it. I've walked around for a few minutes before we started. Uh, I look forward to going back and investigating further the yeah. few things I saw that I was curious about. Going back to the people that you said I will circle back to. Yeah. Fulfilling that promise. Yes. Yes, I like that. Now, you had an installation here last year that was a little bit weird, that if I'm not mistaken, had a Dale Chihuly in it. Any Dale Chihuly fans in the house? I saw the Dale Chihuly show at the Botanical Gardens in the Bronx. It was exciting. But wait, what was the, what was the installation that you did? Because it was really strange. Okay, so, uh, so I work for Marlboro Contemporary Gallery, uh, which is in Chelsea. And two years ago, 
uh, I had to work one of their booths. And while I'm working their booth, I'm looking at some of these smaller project space, space booths that are about six by six feet deep. And I thought to myself, well, why don't you just wall that thing off? Mm-hmm. And that way you don't even have to be here. Like you can kind of walk around the fair and do whatever you want. It's a weird thing to stand in front. I've done it a couple times to stand in front of the six by six foot. Well, booth. because you can't actually stand inside the booth. No. Then you'd block all the artwork. I know. Um, so uh, I thought to myself, well, who do I know that's an artist who builds walls as art? And uh, so I'm lucky enough to be friends with Oscar Tuazon and um, his brother Eli Hansen. And so they built me a wall in theory. Um, but if you're going to have a wall, you're going to need to have something that people can't access. What's the point of a wall into nothing? You know, so, uh, so we came uh, upon this idea of having a Dale Chihuly in there because Marlboro Gallery represents Dale Chihuly and it was accessible and it seemed kind of absurd to have a Dale Chihuly behind a wall at NADA. Um, but there is a bigger backstory to that, which is that Eli Hansen was Dale Chihuly's assistant. Because if you work in the glass-blowing world and live in the Northwest at some you point, yeah. you are Dale Chihuly's assistant. Did he take Dale Chihuly's eye? No. No. Um, that was someone but, else. Uh, but the one reason why this wall idea did not work is because Oscar Tuazon actually built me a wall with a door in it. And although the door was not supposed to open, a lot of people tried to open the door. There's nothing like an angry mob of art collectors that can't get to see the art. So I actually had to be there over time to kind of secure this wall and make sure that nobody pulled it down on top of themselves. Um, but yeah, so that was my one Nada experience, and I've never been invited back since. Well, it was only one year. Who knows? Maybe you got to do every other year. You know, it's kind of like like the parents with the kids on weekends or something. Yeah. Maybe 2019 will be huge for you. But wait, that was a was that a viewing room project? That was a viewing room. Okay. So like a little backstory is yeah. that... Can you unpack what viewing room is for people that don't know? Uh, so I would say eight to nine years ago, I ran my own project space with Nate Lohman and Hannah Leiden called uh, Home Alone 2. And there was Home Alone 1 and then Home Alone 2. And uh, basically, after about four years of losing money doing that, uh, we decided to close the doors. But what I had done in that time was sort of build a resume. And uh, when we had completed that, that th- whatever it was, uh, Marlboro asked me to come basically do the same thing for them. Whereas I, I'm like the director. Huh? To lose money for them? I don't make them money. <laughs> but, you know, the, like the, basically I see my job as uh, bringing in shows for as little as possible. Um, if, as long as I can do that, which is basically every gallery's goal, as long as I, can, if I don't waste money, I can probably keep my job. But that being said, I don't get like much budget or anything because if I did, they would lose money and I would lose my job. So it's still very much treated like a smaller gallery that just happens to be in a bigger kind of uh, corporate gallery. Um, but I have the freedom to curate whatever I want. They don't, they don't um, kind of 
give me any of their opinions about that. Well, in terms of who you're choosing to show, and we've talked a little bit about this before, I know that when you were doing Home Alone and Home Alone 2, a lot of the people that you were showing were, I guess, people who were more or less just age-wise kind of of your generation, like Josh Smith or Adam McEwen and things like that. But the last couple of years, especially with The Viewing Room, you've opted to work with artists who are maybe a generation or two older than you, like uh, Rita Ackerman or Gary Panter, Betty yeah. Tompkins. Um, I don't know if you worked with her specifically there, but what is it about working with people who've kind of been around the block already that mm. attracts you? Because I feel like so many younger people just want to work with people who are coming up, and, and you're working with people who've kind of already had careers. What's the difference there? Um, for for myself, I find that older artists are a lot more appreciative and less career-driven and um, aren't looking to kind of uh, build on a career. They know where they are and they're comfortable with that. So I can't really offer a younger artist maybe the type of shows they want because I don't represent artists, I don't sell art, I, and I don't feel like artists younger artists generally just want to do a show to have fun. You know, generally there's a reason to do it, and that reason is kind of a career-driven reason. And why would they waste time doing a pop-up show when they could be focusing their energy on another gallery, which I completely understand. Whereas an older artist, I think, enjoy doing things for fun. Like, you know, they... I don't know, I just really enjoy it. It's like when they're not looking to gain anything out of it. They just really enjoy having shows. Yeah, and I think that too, though, that, I mean, what you said, it's kind of like, on the one hand, it kind of had me like, oh, God, when you, see, you know, younger artists wouldn't do something strictly to have fun or whatever. And um, I think we often present the idea that that's why we're doing it. But I, I do think in the back of most people's heads is, this is going to lead to something else. Mm -hmm. And even if we pretend that there's all this community and things like that around it, a lot of it is based on an idea of a career-driven kind of practice that no matter how much community engagement we're saying or how much we're building, each one of us thinks that we're the kind of special person that's going to like get picked out of that group or something. And so actually I think there's a nice transparency to just be saying, like, I, I can't do that for you. Yeah. And so you're working with a population of artists who aren't expecting you to either. Yeah, and, it, and it's funny because uh, a lot of the artists that I choose to work with, I find in books because they're so old or so out of fashion that they don't have websites and they, they're not on Instagram. You know, you have to physically cool. read the actual books from that time period and underline these names and then kind of hunt them down and see if they're still alive or what they've been up to. Um, and for every one of those people, I have to write a sort of introductory email kind of explaining myself. And each one of those emails feels like a first date, like a proposal <laughs> for a first date. Like, uh -huh. hey, you don't know me, but I swear I'm a good guy. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I have the best intentions here. Uh -huh. I'm not trying to take advantage of you. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's really nerve-wracking because in my mind, even though some of these people might not be in fashion or in favor within the art world. To me, they're like legends. And I'm like, holy shit, am I really going to write this email? Like, I'm a really bad procrastinator. So, like, right now, I've been working on writing an email for about 10 days. 
and it's to a guy who hasn't had a show since like 1960, you know. Um, and he probably doesn't get that many emails, but I'm like so in awe of him and his work that, you know, and it's really hard to explain my function in the gallery because mm -hmm. it's not a traditional gallery. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, and there's a lot of um, pros and cons to working with Marlboro. Um, you know this is being recorded, right? Yes. Okay. Because uh, Marlboro, you know, they have the insurance, they have the paperwork, things like that I'd never had before. But when people hear Marlboro, they see money signs. And I'm, I don't have that ability to fly people in, to do big, crazy installs. It's still very much just a project space. So... So what I can offer and what people expect are generally two different things. But I can, my philosophy with Home Alone um, and Viewing Room has always been that the artist is always right, even if it's wrong. And I will always work with the artist to do generally whatever they want to do. Uh, but I have limitations too, you know, especially financial limitations. Yeah, it is funny to think about being, when you approach somebody and they hear, oh, it's with Marlboro, and they immediately assume that, well, Leo has an Amex black, or is that even a card? I clearly don't know what I'm talking about. A black American Express card? Yeah. It sounds expensive, right? Yeah. But like to assume that you have that when you're just somebody who works within this space and that you're trying to put something together for somebody that maybe, uh, like you said, maybe they're a little bit out of fashion, they just haven't been around in a while, but you want to put them back in a conversation. And I, I would imagine, though, that as an older artist, that's probably, I imagine they like getting the emails from you, especially if you're pouring over them for 10 days before you send it. Yeah. And Do you put gifts in it? No. Nothing um, like... But, the, the, you know, there's a lot of artists who I have to um, deal with their galleries, you know, and their galleries are quite protective over their artists. And... Um, so I did a show last year with an artist and gallery that won't be named. So I sent them an email with my proposal. And I don't even have a work email. It's just my personal email. And uh, they wrote back, your email was so unprofessional. It really intrigued us. And we want to meet you. <laughs> and I ended up getting that show. Did you get a, I'm curious, what about the email was unprofessional? Just, I never asked. You but, know. you know, I don't dress professional. I don't try to sell myself as anything I'm not. And uh, I think once you can get to the artist and the artist sees that you're genuine, then it's all good. It's just sometimes the galleries are trying to protect their artists. And, and that's completely understandable. And they put a lot of time and money into these artists. So it's understandable that they would try to protect them from bad decisions. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like, you know, I'm always kind of, hey, what do you want to do? I never go into a show saying, of course, I have in my mind pieces that I would like to show. But generally, it's, hey, let's, we have six months to have this conversation and to come up with a show together. Um, like a Gary Panter show. Uh, I went to his studio, and he was showing me some things, and I said, this is all great, but what have you wanted to do that you've never done? And he said, oh, a head shop. I've wanted to make a head shop for 20 years. <laughs> and I, I even have a book dedicated to this thing, and I've just never done it. 
And so it wasn't probably the ideal head shop that he wanted to make, but it was the first head shop out of many, and it was a, an excuse to finally do this thing. And um, I don't think we, again, we didn't make any money, but we didn't lose any money. Were there bongs and stuff? Yeah, there were bongs, but they were useless bongs. I feel like people, yeah, people don't buy bongs as much They anymore. were solid bongs. So you oh. so you couldn't smoke out of them. Well, um, I oh, think the sculpt one sculptural bongs. Yeah, the one thing huh. we sold the most of was this uh, newspaper he had made for the show, and uh, it was basically a whole head shop built to sort of promote this newspaper, and the newspaper was about maybe fifteen dollars or something. And that's what the whole show was for, okay. you know. But then the Library of Congress wrote us and wanted one of his newspapers and stuff, you know. So it's weird the, the small things that kind of come out of this. And he's now doing a second head shop somewhere else. But so for me, it's just nice to be able to give him that opportunity yeah. to, to experiment, you know. Um, so speaking of jobs, you, I think you're known in New York and probably with anybody who's at this fair for... You know, the last 10 years or so is kind of a fixture involved with contemporary art. But as I was, you know, sort of making light of at the beginning during your introduction is that a lot of people's first introduction to you was through film or television and things like that. And But I've read lots of interviews and I know you and I've, I've heard you talk about that acting and things like that is really just like a job that you show up for. And And I'm curious if you could unpack that a little bit because I think to so many people in the art world who just like imagine that they could be in a movie or something at some point, they don't fathom that, that it's like labor and there's probably a lot of downtime and maybe it's not the most exciting thing, but is that, do you still feel these days like being in a movie or being in a TV show is just going to work? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, no, see, like uh, acting can be enjoyable when you're doing it, but I'm not an actor that works a lot. Uh, and again, I didn't um, want to be an actor growing up. It just kind of happened. Um, and it happened through Larry Clark, as you mentioned. And Larry is an amazing art collector. And so at the same time I was doing kids, I was kind of picking up on Larry and the art world. And this is when I was 14. And... Um, and then that kind of just kind of took off. And I, and so basically, I didn't have a great experience doing kids. Like, I didn't want to be an actor. I became an actor. And then I became a, like an infamous guy. And uh, Miramax did a really good job marketing the film because they never like really told anybody that we were actors or anything. They just kind of put the movie out there and let people kind of think what they would. So here I am, an introverted teenager that's now even more introverted. Um, and so, so I really backed away from acting for a long time. Um, and then... Well, people thought you were telly. Yeah, right? of course. They yeah. didn't I, think that you were a, a kid who acted. They thought you were a... Yeah. They wanted to hit you. Exactly. Well, the best compliment <laughs> I ever received was... Uh, I think it was after the year that kids came out, we were all invited to go to Sundance Film Festival. Um, like or maybe 15? it was the Spirit Awards. And uh, Roger Ebert, rest his soul, he said, oh, when, I, when I first saw you, my immediate reaction is I wanted to punch you in the face. 
<laughs> but then I remembered you're just a really good actor. So that was always the best compliment I've ever received. If Roger Ebert wants to punch you in the you, face. And you can't even drive yet at this point. You, no, you know what's funny? So for the film kids, we made $5,000 each, all the actors. That was, that was our total payday, $5,000. But we also were able to uh, take out advances, you know? And so here we are. I was 16 when we made that movie. Like a mini payday loan system? Yeah. The film. So we're taking out, you know, <laughs> we want some new sneakers. We take out 80 bucks. We want to get some weed. We take out 40 bucks, whatever. <laughs> so at the end of the movie, I think I made about $2,500. I'd spent about half of it. <laughs> And I used that money to be, buy a Honda CRX. Whoa. Like a really busted Honda CRX, so I could drive. And you, and you stayed in touch, though, with... I mean, you've stayed in touch with Larry over the years. You did a show with Larry through Home Alone 2, right? Yeah. So and, a couple, and in Tokyo and a couple other places, yeah? Yeah, so me and Larry... Larry's basically like my dad um, in a lot of ways, and um, he's a really fucked-up dad to have. But... Uh, <laughs> But we always just got along, you know? Like, the, I think the one thing people don't understand about Larry is how much he actually respects teenagers. Like, like he, really gives a f he really gives a fuck what they think about him and what they think about the world. And, uh, and he's always had respect for me. And then, weirdly, as we got older and I started kind of working more in the art world, we kind of started working together again. And uh, it, was, it was sort of a nice payback. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't always easy working with him. And you did, a, you did a show of a lot of Larry's, uh, they were original prints of photos, right? Were they just four by six? Yeah. Were, that were like done at the corner yeah. photo place? So basically, um, so starting around, what, I don't know what year Kids was made, but about three years before Kids was made, this is a really long story, so I'll just cut to the photo part of it. <laughs> Around three years before Kids was made, Larry knew the movie he wanted to make. But, and he knew he wanted it to be with skateboarders. Um, but he was 50 years old. And I remember the first time seeing him in Washington Square Park on a skateboard and being like, who the fuck is this narc? Like, <laughs> what is going on here? Um, but that whole time he was photographing everybody. And this was just for like inspiration and stuff. You know, he was just trying to figure out the scene and how it looked and how people dressed and talked. But he, was, he always had his Leica with him. He was always photographing things. And then throughout the years, he just kept shooting photos. And he would do like a Supreme calendar and he would overshoot that. And he just overshoots a lot of stuff. And so he just had all these shoe boxes of four by six prints laying around his house, just gathering dust. And he was like, well, what if we do something with these? And we sell them to kids. That was his original idea. Sell them to young people for 100 bucks each. And I can't sign all, all of them, but we'll stamp them, and we'll make it a little more official. And um, so in his mind, this was a way to give back to the kids that supported him but couldn't afford a $5,000 print or a $10,000 print. And we didn't even tell anyone about the New York show. We told some skaters, maybe like the eight ball zine guys, like just kind of like a, we let it out, like we kind of just leaked it, but we didn't announce it. And so for the first three weeks, you could literally sit there and look through every single photograph. You'd have all day. 
and maybe you could only afford one, but you would get the best one. Um, and then slowly, as people started learning about it, there became a line. And the space was about a quarter squ square of this stage. It was a super small gallery. And it, it became less fun. But then, but now we've done it. We did New York, London, Paris, Tokyo, Los Angeles. I think that's it. Um, and he sold a lot of prints, like a lot. Um, and Wait, you know, which, who's Larry's which, gallery? Loring Augustine. Did, were they into that? Well, see, Larry's really good at press. Like Larry knows how to stay relevant. That's the thing. So, uh, you know, it's not enough money for them, I don't think, to really get upset. But it keeps him relevant. It keeps him like being talked about. And you know, it's I don't know. I think for them, there's bigger fish to fry than a couple hundred <laughs> bucks. After that, yeah. You know, like. Uh, but yeah. Um, so, am I correct that, okay, so you were in, and, and we've talked about this before, because do you remember when I made you FaceTime with my mom? No. It was during Art Chopped, and you were a judge, mm -hmm. and my mom is a big fan of yours. Uh, she's very excited that I knew the guy who played Johnny from The Wire, yes. and, and I had you FaceTime with my mom during an Art Chopped, and she was very excited. But uh -huh. you, I remember you saying once that you'd never seen an episode of that TV show. No. Is that still true? Well, when you... <laughs> See, it's not even how I look. It's my voice. Like, when you have this voice, it's really hard to watch yourself. Like, imagine listening to yourself <laughs> on an answering machine. You're like, I don't fucking sound like that. And so... What do you think you sound like? I don't know. I try to change my voice. I try to talk deeper and do weird shit, and it doesn't <laughs> matter. It always sounds the same, and it's the worst. But so no, I've never watched it. But I th always thought one day I'd get mono or something, and I'd have to watch it. Like you I'd binge the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but I've never seen Sopranos. Never seen Breaking Bad. There's like so many legendary shows that I haven't seen that I would watch before. But you like like you like TV though. No, I only like like. Impractical Jokers. Wait, you do like that? Storage Wars. You watch Impractical Jokers? Yeah. The only time I've ever seen that show is I used to go to this Russian barber on uh, 14th and East 1st, between 1st and A. And these Russian barbers would always be watching Impractical Jokers. And it's I was amazing. Like, Who are these Staten Island fucks? How do they still and get away do, with how it? How do they have a TV show, first of all? How but, do they not know who Sal is? You're like, that's obviously fucking Sal. Like, where are you from? You don't know who Sal is. <laughs> <You> or Murr. <laughs> Frank. I like that you're in, like, prestige HBO television shows and your go-to is Impractical Jokers. Well, it's non-committal. It's non-committal. It's just a, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's lighthearted, well, you know. Or, okay. like, you know, I think the best television show of all time is Antique Roadshow. Antique Roadshow I could watch that show great, yeah. all day long. It's educational. It moves quickly. Yeah. It's just a brilliant show. And then you see their faces when they don't realize, oh, my God, that's worth $500. Like, it's the best feeling in the world. Well, there's, okay, so you, you obviously, your tastes uh, have a lot to do with lightheartedness. But what people know you from in uh, film and television is, like, usually pretty heavy shit. But you still, you have all of these other parts in things that maybe don't come to mind right away with people. And I know that you grew up watching the Uncle Floyd show, yeah, right? Yeah, Uncle Floyd is the best. So can you, yeah. 
for anybody who doesn't know, what is Uncle Floyd? Because you turned me on to Uncle Floyd, and I've, I've become obsessed. I didn't grow up in the yeah. region, and I am not of the time. So Uncle Floyd was basically a public access show. Um, and... Uh, but it was sort of dark, and he would just have his friends like kind of play characters that were sort of shitty characters. And he had a puppet named Oogie who kind of told crass jokes. Um, it was just really fucked up. But then he would also have like uh, Zoog's Rift and Dee Dee Ramone play, and all these weird punk bands that were just kind of like needed a place to play. To be like play on my weird public access show. That's kind of like a carny sideshow. Whoa. But, <laughs> but that is our word. But the other thing is that he would go to all the, um, like the carnivals around New Jersey, and he would sign autographs. So that was like the first celebrity you met in New Jersey. You're like, holy shit, that's fucking Uncle Floyd. Like he's wearing the patchwork coat and everything. You know, <laughs> he was tangible. He was touchable. He was a real thing, Uncle Floyd. And weirdly, I wanted to name my kid Oogie, but my wife wouldn't let me. <laughs> That's not a joke. It seems like, I feel like, and you know, I don't know the one-to-one connection with this, but a lot of the other stuff that probably I feel like you're kind of culturally maybe adjacent to, that people like, I don't know, Spike Jones or like old skate videos that were really experimental and got really weird took cues from things like that. Like took cues from the sketch nature, the other strange things like that. Um, And then I imagine that Uncle Floyd is a sort of influence on uh, Paul Rubens in Pee-wee's Playhouse, or at least he has to be somewhat knowledgeable of him. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe Noah might know this, but supposedly David Bowie made a song about Uncle Floyd. Did you ever hear that rumor? Like, he was kind of this underground legend in, in some weird circles. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, it's like... Because... Uh, Skateboard videos always appropriated other things into the video. They would just take weird clips from, I don't know, like, uh, like black exploitation movies or whatever, just like really random funny shit, uh, like from like, I'm going to get you, sucker. And that would just be in the middle of some guy's part. And you'd be like, oh, shit. And you, and you might not have ever seen that movie, but when you and your friends were out, you would just quote that line, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, how much for a wing? Like, one wing, you know? <laughs> Or how much for a soda? Fuck the cup poured in my hand. Like that was that, I learned those skits from skateboard videos, not from watching the movies. Well, I know? learned about. I mean, I saw. I don't know if I've talked about this on the, on the podcast before, but I saw Johnny Knoxville get shot by a gun, way before I ever saw Chris Burden, yeah. getting shot. You know what I mean? But like, no, they're like Big Brother and things like that. I think that these were cultural access points for people and those skate videos and things like that were borrowing stuff and I was just asking about the Uncle Floyd because it's such a carnival of insanity that also seems like a precursor to Tim and Eric and Adult Swim and Eric Andre and all these other things like that that it just seems like such a funny weird person and I was when you first told me about Uncle Floyd I was just like how have I not it was like the first time somebody told me to check out like the Ernie Kovacs show yeah and I was just like how the fuck did I not know what this was well for me and this isn't necessarily um like uh, about Uncle Floyd, but going back to the idea of working with older artists is the idea of um, figuring out who did things first. Like, that's what I always like. Like, all right, who did this thing first, right? So, like, you know, you have, all right, let's say 
See, and I don't know who did this first, but they're all three very similar pieces. So you have Chris Burden's piece where he's laying next to the car under the tarp with the flares. Do you know that piece? Yeah. Then you have Osco, who did this piece called Decoy uh, Gang War Victim, where it's them laying in the street with flares. And then uh, there's one other artist who did a similar piece. And so for me, the fun part is like, well, who did it first? Even though there wasn't things like Instagram or phones or this, I'm really interested in this kind of like dialogue without any of that stuff. The fact that three artists who live in completely different places, like how could they even be influenced because they don't even know this is happening across town or across the country? It's, it, to me, that all that's interesting. The word of mouth stuff is really interesting too, though, or the way that documentation traveled before I think people were able to hashtag or share things. Like, yeah. I mean, this is a little tangential, but I remember I went to PS1, maybe like, it was probably like six years ago or something, but they were showing a bunch of Chris Burden work. And, you know, I've got like a soft spot for Chris Burden while I also think he seems like a dickhead completely. Um, but important, an important dickhead, that would be how I would describe him, um, would have described him, God rest his soul. But uh, no, but there were, there were some documentation versions of pieces, and some of them were really fascinating. It was just like a, a small, uh, you know, whatever, like a lined note card that you'd use to study for a class with just typewriter on it that just said something like, um, like disappearing piece this year around Christmas yeah. I disappeared for six days didn't tell anybody where I went and like my family flipped out or something yeah. there's nothing else to evidence the piece but this kind of like it got larger than life because of the word of mouth or yeah, the like way that the it spread that way the transfixed piece where he's nailed to the Volkswagen Beetle they back it out onto uh, whatever street it was um, in Venice Beach they rev the engine for like 60 seconds and then it goes back inside and the only evidence you have outside of the photograph is the two yeah. nails yeah yeah like I, that's the thing like it kind of you create this legend because it's not for a mass audience you just kind of do it for yourself and there's a little bit of documentation to prove yeah. I mean for the, the the shoot piece that happened at F Space I mean, I think there was probably less than 10 people in the room. There was the guy who shot him. Yeah. And then there was maybe about four or five other students. It's also, but the funny thing about that, like, shoot, is that I had that, I remember hearing about that in undergrad and having that built up in my head and just like, oh my God. And then when I finally saw the video, I was like, what a stupid, this is such a piece of shit performance art. He's like, ow. Yeah, I mean, it's a little. shovels away and I was just like. That's not dangerous. Who cares? It's a little underwhelming. It's a fucking flesh wound. I mean... I, I knew kids in high school in Michigan who got shot worse. Yeah. Um, I think, but, you know, it's just the idea of doing it. Um, I know. It's, no, that kind of ripple effect. And I, and I like the idea that it was only supposed to scratch his arm, but it actually penetrated his arm. Like, I, I think that's, that adds to, like, yeah. I like that it went wrong. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. And... And I'm always curious if those guys, I don't think they would, but I would assume that in 20 years, people will talk of Jackass as more of like a performance art-based like kind of cultural shift. And that then led to Instagram 30-second yeah. clips of people lighting themselves on fire for a like, which is insane to me. <laughs> well, we were talking, the last time that we hung out, I was, we were talking about Jackass, and I was expressing, and I've talked about it with other people about this before multiple times, but it's the, the weirdness of it is that it is simultaneously the most homophobic and homoerotic thing yeah. that's ever been produced in history. Like, it is 
so broy, but unbelievable, like profoundly gay. Yeah. In like such a wonderful way, and like so much love between these weird men that also are scared to death of how much they love each other, to the point yeah. where they're injuring each other within inches of death. I mean, there's so much going on in there, and many of the pieces are direct nods to Abramovic and Vito Acconci and all these things. Like, yeah, so which clearly. is, I think that's really um, interesting and strange because Johnny Knoxville has always said that his biggest influence is Tom and Jerry, the cartoon. Like, he was like, that's where I stole all my ideas. He doesn't, I don't know <laughs> if it's true, but he doesn't say that he's influenced at all by performance. Yeah, art. I mean, I don't believe it, but I, I, do, I do remember him saying the Tom and Jerry thing. Um, I also wanted to, I wanted to ask you about what is the heart she holler? Because I feel like that yeah. went under the radar, and it should not have. Yeah, the heart she holler is probably my f the favorite acting show I ever did, um, which was on Adult Swim. And it was made by um, these two gentlemen uh, named Vernon Chapman and John Lee. And Vernon and, did, like, Wonder Showsen and stuff, right? Yeah, and they did yeah. Wonder Showsen, and then, uh, I don't know, they've made a bunch of things. But it's a really, really dark comedy, I guess you would say, about a small town in the middle of nowhere um, where very strange things happen. It's kind of like a, a slapstick community theater true detective season one kind of thing it's very, yeah and then there's who people else is in it? like it's amy like, sedaris yeah. david cross um there's so many good people in it steve little um but it's just uh basically seeing how far you can push a joke you know which like that's i think adult swim is really kind of amazing and what what they do and the way like uh I think it's, a, it's almost a, a, a similar platform than like what artists are doing now with like VR and stuff. It's yeah. like a lot of them must watch Adult Swim and get ideas from that. Well, they're also poaching from, but yeah, it's Adult Swim who gave the, uh, like the Wham City comedy guys, I think it was Adult Swim, yeah, it's like Alan Resnick who comes from visual art and these are like Micah kids in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And they're the kids who made uh, like unedited unedited footage of a bear and this house has people and all these weird viral freaky horror comedy things but yeah. yeah it seems like a place where you get this other kind of broadcast as like an art informed weirdo or person who's making stuff that finds a different a different vehicle to reach masses of people because I mean but the, you know I think the other thing with uh, Adult Swim is that it's over before you can even ask yourself what the fuck did I just watch yeah. you know every episode is only 12 minutes so if you're in college and you're smoking weed and eating pizza and you turn around and you're like I, that's all like I don't even know I was just <laughs> getting like, into it it's like you know that. and that's kind of brilliant because it just keeps coming at you and you just keep shrugging your shoulders and you're like I'm going to figure this out at some point but then you keep smoking weed and then you keep going deeper into a hole so I, I think that it's I would imagine if you're a kid at RISD and you like to smoke weed and you grew up on Fort Thunder and like this kind of whole thing then you like Adult Swim yeah you know. I feel like some of those things on Adult Swim are like do you know the you know drinking out of cups no come on really I don't watch much Adult Swim it's YouTube it's like uh, old it, school. It's uh, drinking Liam, out of cups. Really? It's like a. <clears throat> this is old, old YouTube, but it's a uh, Dan Deacon, that like musician. Uh -huh, yeah. It's Dan Deacon, and this is my understanding of it. Is Dan Deacon <clears throat> was on 
a bunch of uh, cold medicine, was just sick, took some NyQuil, was watching the TV and just recording himself narrating what was going on, but as if he were this shitty guy from Long Island. And he's just sh- he's saying, like, the worst shit. Like, just very inappropriate stuff. And then Liam Lynch, who did Syphil and Ollie on MTV, like the sock puppet show, uh-huh. and made that This Is My United States of Whatever song, I think. He animated like a, like a lizard, like a lizard saying out loud what was going on. And it went onto YouTube and it became this psychotic thing that no one had any, like rumors were flying. It was like, this guy is locked in a closet. He's been in there for like three days on LSD. No one will feed him and his friends just have a mic hanging in there. They're recording him. No way. No way. What is this garbage? What is this? Oh, I'm king of the trees. I'm the tree meister. I count on them. What sometimes I pry, I like to steal it. And then, like, somebody animated... I mean, it created this cultural mythology by a delivery method of YouTube that was so insane. And everybody just lost their shit because no one understood it. And the first time that I watched it, I just remember sitting there for four minutes and just... It was, like, the first time I saw something on Adult Swim where I was just like, what? Who made... Why is this... And, you know, I mean, I'm not... all for appropriation and stuff, but like uh, then you have uh, things like Peppy the Frog, like that totally get appropriated and used in a completely different context. I think we both agree in a great new direction. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, so where you have the creator has to, to sue Infowars, like Infowars and fucking Alan Jones or whatever that guy. Alex is. Jones. Alex Jones. Man, Alex Jones used to be cool. Like. In a fucked up way. Like in all those old, what's that guy's name who makes all the movies about fucking Austin, who made like Waking Life? Richard Linklater. Uh, yeah. Alex Jones was in all those fucking movies. You can blame Richard Linklater for Alex Jones' ascension. Like rotoscoping and Richard Linklater are why people know who Alex Jones is. He's always cruising around with a megaphone screaming out of a car in those movies. He's in Slacker. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's like an old school Austin guy that people thought was just like funny as shit and then like three years ago because he was always about lizard people and stuff which rules right yeah it's awesome to call people lizards but then he turned into just a maniac yeah like he was like i can get white house credentials if i act like this i just like it and it's kind of fucked up i just like it when their like marriages start falling apart oh yeah because they become a character so much that their own wives like can't stand they're always in custody court yeah it's all and like, Ex- and like, Exhibit A, you're fucking... Sh- is it on the internet, that sh- uh, Infowars? Infowars, yeah. And he, uh, yeah, he, he's good. <laughs> I think he had to apologize in custody court, literally, for, or say that he was a performance artist for saying that oh, right. uh, Newtown didn't happen, that yeah. those children weren't slaughtered. Yeah. Because I believe his ex-wife was sort of saying, this man can't take care of my children. He thinks... Newtown didn't happen, and yeah, his lawyer had to be forgot, like, it's performance I forgot art. he went for the performance art angle, <laughs> which is an interesting angle. Like, I mean, um, not, not true. You could blame a lot of things on performance art if you wanted to. Well, I think, the, I mean, my assumption is always that those people, I don't, none of those people are uh, as into what, no one is as into what they're doing as they say that they are, not even kind of. Like, George W. Bush doesn't believe in God. Like, there's no fucking way George W. Bush has the slightest iota of Christianity in him. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't care about any of that. Alex Jones doesn't think that they're crisis actors. It's just this, like, 
Milo Yiannopoulos doesn't well, think, think that transgendered people don't have rights. Like, none of these people actually believe this stuff. They're just... Well, I think it's giving an audience what you think they want to hear. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, it's a performance of a particular stripe, I, I think. also believe that you can tell yourself a lie so long that you believe it, you know? That's you're true. Like, well, yeah, you know, I started out kind of being cynical or maybe making racist jokes, but I've been doing it so long, maybe I'm just cynical. Like, maybe I'm now just racist. Like, you know, you start to kind of believe your own shit after a while. That's and true. especially... All right, I'll let you guys in on the six of you that are here. I'll let you in on something personal. Uh, sorry, the audio cut out for anybody <laughs> listening later. He said so, 600, uh, I think, was the number. Is that what you meant to say? So my mother-in-law is a famous astrologer, right? And Miss Cleo? No. Um, but it is interesting when you... When somebody is telling literally thousands and thousands of people what to do every day, how kind of empowered they get by that. You know, and when, and uh, so if she gets sick or something and these people, she doesn't write her blog or whatever, these people get mad. They're like, what am I supposed to do with my life, lady? Like, you've been running my life for the last 10 years. So... So it's tricky when you have that kind of level of power over people and you need to give them what, they, what you think they want. Like, you know, I don't know. I, I'm glad I have zero power over anybody. So nobody? That, nobody. You well, have my, child, I have a kid, yeah. Yeah, yeah I can you have fuck total power. You can do whatever the yeah. fuck you want. Yeah. That's crazy. You can make your kid think crazy shit. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how I went into it. But then, <laughs> but then once you have them, you're kind of just you psyched yeah, on yeah, them just being yeah. weird anyway. You're like, yeah, actually, yeah. he's weird enough. Like yeah, I'm yeah. into this. Like, you know, yeah, children are weird as I shit. I bought him a baseball jersey the other day. I never thought I hate baseball. What team? A Yankees jersey. It just seemed like a, a cute, fucking Yankees kid. It just seemed like a cute thing to give a kid a Yankees jersey. I Wait, can, does he like the Yankees or you? He doesn't give a shit about baseball. Oh. I don't you got to turn in one of those. You got to turn in one of those Mets kids. Those are the kids that'll like slap you in the mouth, like uh, a Yankees. I could beat up a Yankees kid. I don't. But if know. I meet a kid who's like into the Mets, I'm just like I'm fucking not fucking with you. It's more blue collar. It's is blue it? collar, I mean, and it's also like that kid is you don't. That kid does not care about losing a fight. Because they lost the championships ever since the 86 (laughs) Olympics or whatever, the World Series. (laughs) When the Mets played in the 1986 Olympics. That would be cool. We should send... Do they have baseball in the Olympics? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. We should just send the Mets. The 86 Mets. The 86 Mets. Weathered and, like, going through withdrawals. Just send them to the the Olympics. Um, All right, my dude. Well, we are, you know, at about time here, so... Wow, that was quick. Yeah, I wanted to say, though... Thanks very much for coming on Humor in the Abject to uh, the 600 people out there. Yeah. I want to say what's up. I can't see all of you in the back, but I see your phones all lit up pointing at me. It's very exciting. Uh, and shout out to Andrea Merckx for helping us with sound. Thank and, you. Uh, thanks to Nada. And, thanks, everybody. Uh, love you very much. I guess if you're listening on headphones, uh, until next week. We're only making plans for night you. Nigel just needs that helping hand.
Rachel says he's happy. He must be happy. He must be happy. He must be happy in his world. He must be happy in his world. 